G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast, and we don't ask for much in return. Well, not really anything. But we'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcast um, or Acast or wherever you actually download this podcast and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great. Other reviews, please give them to other shows. Um, and we really appreciate if you could just spend a couple of minutes of your time to do that for us. So today, in the studio, joining Brian, myself um, we're going to talk to associate professor david Connolly, one of our cardiologists here at the rbc so many thanks david for finally agreeing to to joining us in the, in the studio <laughs> He's, he says that under breaky breath not even going to say about the, the the bribe that i had to offer him to come in here um so uh, so we're going to talk about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and cancer so maybe my, my first question um to you is in your uh your physical assessment or how, how do we actually diagnose hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and cancer uh, the gold standard, unfortunately, in some ways, is echocardiography, cardiac ultrasound, because one of the problems with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is it's very common, and it can be silent in that there could be no clinical signs in the preclinical period, and so a cat may not even have a murmur. Unfortunately, there are an awful lot of cats out there which have murmurs and don't have any underlying structural heart disease, so cats are quite difficult from that point of view. So if you hear a murmur in a cat, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's got a disease, let alone hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Less commonly, but it is possible that you can have a cat without a murmur, which has quite severe hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So picking up a murmur on a physical exam, unlike in a dog, doesn't always take us where we want to go. In more advanced disease, we may pick up what we call a gallop sound, and that's where we hear a extra heart sound. So instead of lub-dub, lub-dub, which is a kind of beginning and the end of systole, we'll hear a diastolic heart sound when the heart is failing to relax properly. And that kind of sounds a bit like do lub-dub, do lub-dub, do lub-dub, which we do very quickly. <laughs> sounds like do lub-dub, do lub-dub, do lub-dub, and hence the gallop. Um, and that is pretty indicative that there's a cardiac disease, that there is changes to the structure of the heart in the cat doesn't confirm hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but since that's the most common form of cardiomyopathy, it's the one for op- to opt for if you're a betting person. Um, so a gallop is something that makes me concerned that I've got something bad going on, and most likely HCM. And if then, I, God, sorry. Interrupting me, young man. <laughs> if I hear an arrhythmia, again, that suggests advanced disease, and again, that's something that definitely makes me concerned. And if I pick those up on a physical, then I'll want to take things further. Um, and do further tests such as biomarkers and or cardiac ultrasound, which, as I said, is the gold standard. So if you hear arrhythmia in cats, would you want to have a look at that with an ECG before you'd have a, have a look with, a, uh, with an echo? Or are you saying that it's, it's more common to be structural in a cat? More common to be structural, I would get an echo... I'm oh, sorry, I'd get an ECG diagnosis ultimately, but my first thoughts in that situation is I've got structural heart disease... Uh, and I'm going to go for the echo and see what's going on. But obviously I'd want to then assess the severity of the arrhythmia, um, which is generally ventricular in cats, to be honest, with HCM. Rarely do we get atrial fibrillation. We do get some supraventricular tachyarrhythmias. Okay. And I don't want to get sort of too technical about this, uh, David, but but if you um, do an echo, is there is there consensus across uh, cardiologists about what is actually HCM? 
man, how many hours have you got to waste of your life with that question? Right. No, I suppose, I suppose, <laughs> I suppose uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really want to get too technical, but, but I suppose we could say that there's the, you know, maybe it's a broad understanding of, a, of a disease. There, there is a Catholic appreciation using that in its broad term. I mean, what people, most people think that if the thickness of the ventricular wall, the left ventricular wall, at the end of diastole is greater than six millimetres. That is the what most people consider. Beyond that is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. But that's a little bit random if you think about that in a more philosophical way. But as a diagnosis, we tend to use uh, a thickness of greater than six millimetres uh, on two-dimensional echo as as our cutoff. Um, bottom line is eyeballing it. If it's a great big thick ventricle. Um, you know, we we don't always have to even measure it. We know it's HCM. The problem comes in screening, where you're talking about millimeters. Is it 5.9? Is it 6.1? And that is where issues are more difficult to to decide. So I know that ultrasound in practice is probably getting more and more more common, and I imagine a lot of people are, are giving it a go. And and definitely we try and. Um, you know, I suppose even interns and even sometimes like students get involved and have a look with an ultrasound for for emergencies, but maybe look at a four chamber view or get the aorta to left atrium ratio. So I suppose if people are concerned that there might be hypertrophy, um, like eye, eyeballing it as it as it were, not necessarily measuring. Is there anything that is a, a, a common um, a misunderstanding of like pseudo hypertrophy, or are there any other? Like common causes might actually make you think it's well, it's not the heart; it's just the way it looks in in this sort of clinical scenario. Sure, there are well, there are a number of other diseases that can cause thickening of the ventricle, but they tend to be more rare in cats, and they would be things like hypertension. Although it's got to be very chronic hypertension to cause significant hypertrophy of the left ventricle. Acromegaly would be another one, so hypersomatotrophism, um, which seems to be becoming increasingly common as, as time goes on, as publications come out. And we've certainly done some work on that. Uh, pseudohypertrophy, we will see it. And that can occur either because of reduced vascular volume um, for a variety of reasons, or even um, if you're looking at a cat with a significant tachyarrhythmia, you, because the heart hasn't filled properly, you may get the impression of... Um, of thickening of the wall but these tend to be associated the pseudo hypertrophy with very small atria normal to small atria if you have a thick ventricle with a big atrium then you're far more likely to be going down your hcm route um and uh, and i suppose it so what what is there a consensus at the moment of uh, of thinking about treatment with or without like clinical signs for, for cats with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy unfortunately there's not a lot out there um, when I were a lad, more years ago than I care to think, um, beta blockers were used, you know, well, originally, if you go back to the original papers, um, there was papers way back in the late 80s, I think, which were thinking of saying that diltiazem actually reduced the degree of hypertrophy. I, mean, I think that's never been shown to actually be true, and there's various reasons and problems with those papers. Um, so we ha don't have a drug that reduces the degree of thickening or reduces the underlying disease process. And they don't have in humans either with HCM. Um, so prophylactically, there's not a lot we can do to try and prevent disease progression. Um, where we have an enlarged left atrium, what we would certainly do is give an anticoagulant of some sort. And, you know, the two common ones are clopidogrel or aspirin 
in rare occasions both on, on balance we tend to try and use clopidogrel instead of aspirin um, and you know that that is to prevent clot formation and in cats clots can form in the left atrium but then fly off to different parts of the cat's body um, and cause some fairly unpleasant conditions the most common one being thromboembolism of the pelvic limbs which is a pretty nasty presentation as, as far as a way to um, ascertain whether that's going to happen is there some flow studies looking in the left auricular appendage is that right to, to sort of try and work yeah. out whether clots were going to form but, yeah. but do, it's not necessarily a clinically applied thing is that well we will do it but to be honest if i have a big atrium i give clopidogrel if i have a big atrium that's got spontaneous contrast or smoke or swirly stuff in the atrium i definitely want to give an anticoagulant i think they're probably more important eyeballing characteristics than, than worrying too much about left auricular velocities although you know um, there are papers out there showing um what normal cat's left auricular velocity is and what um a cat which has got hcm's um velocity is the other thing we look at if you want to go down the echo route which we, as well as size of atrium is atrial function the remember the atrium contracts like the ventricle and you know we have measures for um, degree of atrial contraction if that is significantly reduced which it often is in hcm that again is an indicator that um you know we've got a poor potential prognostic outlook Okay, well, I suppose that, that goes into that. Uh, what are, what are the prognostic sort of indicators for for cats with with HCM? So indicators um, are just going back. Actually, I'm going to yeah. go back to. So we talked about beta blockers briefly. Yeah. Um, the only time that we might give a beta blocker these days is if we have a cat which we've confirmed by ultrasound um, to have significant outflow tract obstruction. So proportion of these cats with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy because of abnormal movement of their mitral valve, and that's to do with the change in the geometry of the left ventricle, uh, can get a dynamic obstruction of the blood as it leaves the left ventricle into the aorta. Um, we used to give beta blockers all the time whenever we got any bit of outflow tract obstruction. Now we tend to only do it, certainly at the RVC, um, when that obstruction is severe or where we think the cat's showing clinical signs, and that often our cat's presenting... Occasionally with syncope, but more often with open mouth breathing at exertion. Um, and we think these cats are either feeling hypoxic or maybe even feeling some kind of chest pain. And they do seem to respond to beta blockers and um, are much more active and much more happy cats. And is there any indication for diuretics as far as you're concerned? Not until they're in failure, uh, but certainly once we're in failure, it's a whole different ball game. Okay. Um, and so, so going to prognostic indicators, um, so, what, so are there things that you're more concerned about? So Rosie Payne, who was a PhD student here and then a resident here, um, did some lovely work on um, prognostic indicators, and these were predominantly echo parameters. Um, and these were things like left atrial size, left atrial function, significant thickness of the um, ventricular wall, so these all kind of came out in multivariant analysis as fairly significant um, factors. So low left atrial function, big left atrial size, um, significant thickening of the wall of the ventricle, reduced left ventricular function as well, were all very poor um, prognostic indicators. Other things, well, perhaps we should talk a little bit about diagnostics and biomarkers, or are you going to do that later? No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> We're jumping from We're prognostics good. to yeah, diagnostics. I love it. Um, people on their toes. Yeah, yeah. So biomarkers is the other thing, which in cats, 
like nothing's perfect and we need to think that all this work that was originally done on biomarkers were done on a population, you know, the population studies, and that doesn't always translate directly to each individual animal. That's just for any kind of biomarker test, be it a liver, be it a heart. And also, without ranting on too much, the first tests are always done on the worst cases versus the absolute young normal, and it's no different in humans as well. So these biomarkers look amazing in the first papers, and then as people start refining and looking at partly affected animals compared to badly affected animals compared to old normal animals, you know, the, the, the sensitivities and specificities start reducing a bit. That all said, um, they are still pretty good in cats, and... Um, Certainly BNP, so NT-pro-BNP, natriuretic peptide, um, is a pretty good rule-out biomarker. So what I mean by that is that uh, we get a number of false positives, which you could argue isn't in the end of the world because we have a gold standard where we can then go on an ultrasound. Obviously, it's going to cost the client money, but from the cat's point of view, if you get a positive... You do an ultrasound and it's a false positive, well, you've spent some money, but you want an answer. Um, they tend to have far less false negatives. So a false negative, sorry, they tend to have far less false negatives. So if you get a negative, it tends to be fairly robust. So they're a pretty good rule out. They're not 100%, but they're a pretty good rule out. So if we had a cat which maybe had a murmur and you did a BNP and the BNP was within normal limits, then you could be reasonably um, easier uh, just monitoring that and maybe repeating things down the line. So it might be more more appropriate before you go into the to the next step. So if yeah. it is negative, right, well, and maybe it's not as significant as yeah. we need to need to worry about. Are there any other biomarkers? That uh, we also use troponin. Um, in combination with BMP, it certainly can have some additional benefits from more probably from prognostically rather than um, diagnostically. Uh, and troponin is a marker of myocardial cellular damage. So this tends to be a more advanced disease where you actually have significant um, myocardial cellular breakdown releasing the troponin into the circulation. I would see that in a more advanced disease where we have in small infarcts or even fairly major infarcts in the wall of the ventricle in cats. And that's where troponin comes from. It comes from kind of ischemic disease in humans is where it's a, a marker for. Uh, and we do get um, ischemic localised ischemic disease in cats with advanced hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And do you think so it's similar to other, other biomarkers, as you said, so the initial work always looks sort of pretty good, and then I suppose as, as time goes on, if people are still using it, then actually, you know, do, do we all get a better sense of, of the value of, of these markers and when, they, when they're useful? And, and not? Absolutely, and I think probably at the moment troponin is probably more of a prognostic thing. I, I wouldn't be using it as a diagnostic Mark, I think the BMP is is a better marker for that. Mm. Okay, um, and uh, and that's uh, you know, that, that's excellent. I suppose I was, I was reading uh, recently about the uh, um, you know, differentiating sort of uh, cats with uh, ATM or heart failure for those that have like a transient myocardial thickening. And, and I suppose you, we were speaking uh, a, a little bit before when the when the uh, mics were closed that that uh, um, maybe this isn't that sort of common. So maybe if people are uh, having a, a look at uh, or seeing this in the in the literature and concerned that maybe maybe these cats are going to get better. I suppose it's what we're saying is that it's probably a, a small percentage of the cats that you're you're going to. Yeah. See. So there was this paper recently which came out of the RBC and looking at a bunch of cats which um, appear or didn't appear to have had thickening of their ventricle and the common 
background to all this is these cats tended to be young and otherwise fairly healthy, but had recently undergone a um, intervention of some sort, be that a, um, a cat spay or an anaesthetic. I can't remember the full details, but they had had some form of intervention, some induced crisis in their life and then they presented um, often with clinical signs and were treated with treatment for heart failure and um, and responded extremely well and then magically when the confused clinician looked a month later or six weeks later all this thickening of the wall had gone away again which isn't supposed to happen in HCM um, and I mean, I, I was involved in this to a point, and you would discuss this at meetings, and you'd discuss this with your cardiology mates, and everyone would go, oh, yes, I've seen one of them. And we'd all scratch our heads, and then we kind of decided to talk to each other and put a bunch of these together in a paper. And, yeah, it's a real phenomenon. It occurs. We, you know, we've all seen it. It's, people have seen one or two cases in the cardiology world. So, you know, you're looking at specialists who do nothing but cardiology all the time, and they can all remember two or three cases like this so it's not particularly common cats which have true hypertrophic cardiomyopathy uh, unless the only time that their wall will get thinner is if in advanced disease they have an ischemic um, aspect to their disease where the myocardium is damaged and replaced by fibrosis so with true HCM we don't expect that thickness to go away unless there's a ischemic insult on top of their HCM. And can I, can I ask, is there any sort of studies going on at the moment or any, any uh, drugs that you can think of being looked at to see if they can benefit uh, HCM in cats or are we extrapolating anything from people um, with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy to see if there's any drugs that might, might work in, in the feline species? With respect to progression? Yeah. And there's a lot of experimental stuff going on which is still very much in the uh, realms of of experiments and not really in any significant trials at the moment but um, there's one bunch of drugs which are being looked at are drugs which reduce calcium sensitivity in the myocardium and there's another drug um, which has been looked at and I can't remember if it's going to human trials yet or not but it's specifically looking at the beta myosin heavy chain and reducing its interaction um, with actin uh, to kind of dampen down that overzealous action which appears to occur in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy um, so there are new things coming online and new exciting research in that direction but it certainly hasn't translated into the human or, or feline clinic yet do you, do you think there will be a not necessarily magic bullet but but something that that might be able to help the progression of this disease? i think so i think in 10 years there'll be stuff out there which will actually i think um eat both of those mechanisms which i've mentioned have great potential uh but it's a case of you know refining them and nading them a little bit better um but certainly the second drug i mentioned um, which i think has got some strange m324 type number um, has been put in cats and hasn't killed them and did seem to reduce the severity of obstruction that they occur that occurred in those drugs um, and it's been used in mouse models as well and showed to have great benefit in those, but not everything translates from a mouse into the real world. Mm. Um, I suppose uh, it's just having a think about uh, other things that we, we forget to mention. Would you, would you have a look at the sort of endocrine diseases in, in cats as well? Would you, would you always ask for a, for a T4 if you're concerned about a, a cat with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? Yeah, so or? in an older cat, with particularly, that's particularly important if we have a cat which is in heart failure. 
and it's an older cat, we'll always check T4 because if this cat has got hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and hypothyroidism and old cats can get more than one disease quite happily, um, you'll really struggle to get its failure under control whilst it's hypothyroid. So yeah, we check for goit neck goiters all the time and we routinely run T4 levels um, in cats with, in heart failure of you know, eight years or older. Um, you know, there's all the big arguments about sick you thyroid and all that kind of thing. But the, I go to the medics about that. But if the T4 is high, then I would need to address that because I'll really struggle to get that cat out of failure otherwise. Acromegaly, I got, or hypersomatotrophism, I get into trouble, call it properly. Again, it's not something we've routinely looked at because traditionally, according to um, Stein, it has been associated with cats with uncontrollable diabetes. So if your cat doesn't have or difficult to control diabetes, then you know you wouldn't think about it being a cause of LVH in a sorry hypertrophy in a cat. But I know he now has been showing that there are a number of non-diabetic cats out there with hypersomatotrophism, so that might all get a little bit murkier because certainly hypersomatotrophism does cause thickening of the wall of cats' ventricles. We know that. So again, we might, I suppose, might see does the progression of that uh, change as well when you get the acromegaly under control? Or, or yes, we, we, yeah. So here at college, we do um, we we I love that we <laughs> the neurologists do some amazing surgery and, and do hypervasectomies and remove the pituitary tumor. And we got a nice paper out recently looking at the regression of the thickening of the ventricular wall post hypervasectomy. So absolutely. It's quite good, isn't it, that that, that certain things, uh, you know, are changeable in, in the cat. You know that they can, if you take away their, uh, the the stressor or the. Or the so, so you've the come up thing. with with the third possible cure that we have in car- the whole of cardiology: <laughs> PDA, pulmonic stenosis, and now hypervasectomy. <laughs> 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 I be able to cure three things out of everything. <laughs> well, fair enough. Well, I suppose actually, no. I suppose we've got mitral valve. Uh, the mitral valve um, repair now, so we're getting there. Yeah, well, you know, just like British Rail, we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there eventually. Um, do you think there's anything else that we need to uh, to, to talk about with uh, with cats with HCM, sir? I hate that sort of question. Do you, well, no, if we missed out like a chunk of. Uh, oh, probably uh, have, but you're asking a senile old man. To, <laughs> you ask me questions, dear, and I'll answer them. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose heart failure. Yeah. Um, so what do I got to say about heart failure? I've got a couple of rants on heart failure, um, which are kind of pleading to, to, to people. So if you have a cat which is in significant breathing problems and it's got a gallop or it's got an arrhythmia, so we're worried that it's got underlying structural heart disease, um, just remember that a lot of cats present with pleural fluid. So their heart failure isn't necessarily pulmonary edema. The heart failure is often pleural fluid or pleural fluid and pulmonary edema. So just be enormously aware of that because if you start stressing those cats and particularly if you start doing anything like sticking them on their side to take a radiograph, there's a good chance of killing them. So cats you know, in that situation are pretty delicate. Uh, if I have a cat which is breathing badly, I'm concerned there's underlying structural heart disease the very first thing I do is just slap an ultrasound probe on its side and that can be done so easily with just an, somebody holding the cat, cradling the cat. It doesn't have to be pinned to a table or anything. You don't need to um, shave the hair or anything, just a little bit of gel, maybe a bit of spirit, but don't tell the manufacturer. And if there's pleural fluid, you'll see it straight away. 
you know, it's totally stress-free. Don't try taking radiographs or anything. Just holding the cat in the, the way it wants to be held and um, slip the probe on and rule in or rule out pleural fluid. If there's pleural fluid there, then it needs draining. You know, giving a little bit of fruzamide ain't going to do anything. Uh, and that's, a, you know, an important point, I think, um, in the management of acute heart failure in cats. You need to drain those that are, have got significant pleural fluid causing their dyspnea. The other great thing about that is you can actually run BNP on your pleural fluid. Um, so you have one of the snap tests and things and you don't know if the pleural fluid is cardiogenic in origin or something else. Um, BNP can certainly help you with that um, because there's some nice paper by Mel Hesel out there looking at um, the diagnostic abilities of um, pleural fluid BNP uh, to distinguish between cardiogenic and non-cardiogenic pleural fluid. Do you, do you ever give sedation over to, to these cats or just a little bit to decrease that the yeah. myocardioxin yeah. demand? Or? Very happy to sedate cats in that situation. Very happy to sedate cats which have got significant pleural fluid, sorry, significant pulmonary edema as well, which we're trying to control. So these cats are in oxygen. We'll give them sedation. We will be giving them a furosemide. Um, if it, they're in with the ECC boys by CRI, if it's with us cardiologists, probably by boluses, but we get uh fruzamide into them but yeah sedation taking away that horrendous anxiety associated with dyspnea is really important and mm. um, do, do you think butorphanol is that is that your, your sedation ask the ecc you can ask that one yourself <laughs> darling i come to anesthesia or ecc and say what sedative should i give <laughs> which is usually an opioid maybe butorphanol yeah <laughs> um absolutely i think something like it and anything to take a little bit of edge off uh, edge off doesn't doesn't hurt no no i think an anxiolytic is a really mm. important thing these cats are absolutely terrified and they're they, as as in humans with you know horrendous asthma and heart failure, they're not helping themselves with the the anxiety associated with trying to breathe. And I definitely, no, we definitely have a a, a hands off approach, and I don't think particularly as they've they've never just come into the hospital, haven't they? They've travelled here, they've been in a in a in a stressful sort of environment probably before they've they've arrived, and then uh, we we definitely uh, um, have a hands off approach and put them in oxygen and allow them to chill and and maybe give them some furosemide and, and uh, a bit of sedation before like trying to put a cat or anything like that in. I've seen that, that um, you said any position that the cat can like and sometimes for ultrasound I think if you just put like a towel in front so they can put their front paws on, on that towel or someone's arm yeah, and just raise that the, their legs a bit so you can actually get a probe to have a look at the heart no. rather than pulling their legs uh, Great idea, um, yeah, uh, cranially is, is good but they, they, yeah. they do tolerate uh, um, that a lot and I, I think that's probably where as often as the really simple things, actually, we, we all talk about the complicated things, but rather than sticking a cat on a metal table, which is going to shit off, you know, just put a vet bed down, put a towel yeah. down, just, you know, just use a little bit of... <laughs> no. It's the little things that are often the things that enable you to do something without much stress to yourself or the cat. Quiet room, dark room, all those kind of things. I like the, there's a... Um, a a book by uh, Serge Plunkett. Hopefully, I said his name correctly, but but I love the phrase he uses is about don't let radio radiographs be a terminal procedure. Precisely, and I, I think that's uh, that's um, a, a, a nice a nice a nice point. The um, only thing I would say about half in the cats, um, without going to big details about necessarily treatment, just be aware cats are very different from dogs. Their hypertrophic cardiomyopathy can be incredibly stable. 
So a dog with mitral valve disease, you know, he's got progressive disease, it's going to get worse prolapse, it's going to get worse regurgitation, blah, 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 blah. Um, cats, as in humans, can have very progressive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or they can have very stable HCM and actually die with their HCM, or renal disease rather than of their HCM. And therefore, cats have a habit of living on the edge of heart failure. We should have a film, was it women living on the edge of a nervous breakdown, cats living on the edge of heart failure, which means they can go for months quite happily with no medication or homeopathic frozomide every other day or something until something happens and upsets them. And that could be the visit to the vet for the vaccination or the dental, the classic, um, or another cat coming into the environment and a cat fight or getting hypothyroidism you know all these things so they they can be stable for months and years until something else happens and that's so they are very different from dogs from that point of view and that's why we tend not to necessarily re-see many cases back at the rbc you know the big travel around the m25 once we made the diagnosis stabilize the cats we do like uh, our colleagues in practice to kind of look after them because experience has told us that if we see this beautifully controlled heart failure cat back by the time it gets back to us through the m25 chaos it'll be in fulminant heart failure again so you know it's a case of keeping their lives pretty stable and happy and often they'll do very well but any little crisis in their lives pushes them over the edge and i suppose why clopidogrel is is uh, you know very useful for these cats to avoid you know said that or hopefully reduce the risk of getting a thromboembolism but i suppose like with with cats in general you want to make sure or with with most of our, our patients that any of the medications we choose to give definitely has a beneficial effect and yes and if we're uncertain about that then then you know giving a, a cat a tablet is going to increase no, stress as, and- as well without being rude about my lovely wonderful residents you know one of the things we try and eventually get into their over enthusiastic heads is if you give a cat owner seven tablets then it's not going to happen and if you are going to do that then you need to tell them that tablet number one the clopidogrel or the frozomide is the tablet it must have and the others are for the fun of it if you can do it and the cat doesn't mind so you know you've got yeah, it's common sense yeah no absolutely absolutely um thank you very much for your time uh david and joining myself and brian um for that for the podcast we'll, we'll wrap it up there um and many thanks for for you uh, for listening um so don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your generic fruit based device and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast if you could leave us a review a uh, five-star review preferably and um, that would be great and don't forget to tell your friends vet friends or others and we'll play some show notes in the obvious pages so just type in rvc clinical podcast your search engine and it should be top of the tree if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast please get in touch you can email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at don barfield until next time bye bye